everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. Happy Friday to you out there. You know, hope you're getting ready for a good weekend. And, you know, today we're just going to have some fun. I'm, I'm, I've got some good ideas for this podcast. And I'll just tell you, all these ideas came from our listeners and viewers. And I told you, you know, I'm always interested in new thoughts and new ideas. Um, and one of them was actually initiated from a private message from one of our listeners. And we'll get into that. And, and, and it's all about our economic system. And the second topic is about the stimulus package, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that Joe Biden is releasing. And we want to kind of go through that and kind of go through the good, the bad and the ugly of it. Cause you know, we're only hearing some of the good highlights, but there's a lot of stuff that's in that package, that $1.9 trillion stimulus, that's just unbelievable. So we'll get into that as well. So thanks again for everybody that's listening and watching here on the live stream. You know, we do this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2 p.m. Um, you know, welcome your comments and thoughts. Just type them in to the uh, comment section on either on YouTube or on Facebook. I'll read your comments on the air. We'll have a little discussion. We'll have some fun on a Friday. And man, you know, it's uh, don't worry, be happy. It's Friday. Hakuna Matata. All right. So um, anyways, let's uh, let's get into this this uh, message. And I, you know, again, I it was a private message from one of my listeners. I'm, so I'm not going to disclose their name because it was a private message. But but basically it was a comment on the Fernando Tatis uh contract podcast that we did. Remember, he signed that $340 million deal, 14-year deal. I mean, it was huge money, you know, and we were going through that and talking about the, the, the contract, but he had an interesting angle and he was saying, you know, that it almost makes him, it's an obscene amount of money, $340 million. It, it almost makes him uncomfortable with our economic system. And, you know, how could some people get so much while there's other people that are destitute and are struggling and, you know, there's just some sort of inequity in our system and, and can, is there a way to do it better? And, you know, is, he said, is this the best we can do for humanity? And, you know, we hear this topic a lot, right? Where people are, concerned that, you know, CEOs are making so much money and we haven't raised the minimum wage and, you know, this income inequality, wealth inequality. And, you know, it's a hot topic right now. And, you know, people raise this issue quite often. But if you look at Fernando Tatis's contract, there's a lot of critics, you know, in the baseball world, in the business world, that some people think that he's being underpaid, that he's actually worth more than $340 million. So that's kind of another angle on this. I mean, it is an insane amount of money, but he's an insane talent that generates lots of eyeballs, lots of viewership, you know, which fuels advertising revenue, lots of ticket sales, lots of merchandise sales. I mean, Fernando Tatis is like the you know, he's a transcendent sports figure. He's like LeBron James, like Patrick Mahomes. He's like Elvis Presley, right? You know, he, he's this amazing guy. Some people think that really he's going to generate so much income for the Padres and for Major League Baseball. And frankly, for sponsors and companies that he's integrating his marketing strategy with, the $340 million might actually not be enough. Um, but still, I mean, let's really get to the core point of what my listener was bringing up. And that's, you know, is it right in our society that some people can make so much money, such outrageous amounts of money? I mean, how many billionaires do we have? And then meanwhile, 
you know, we haven't raised the federal minimum wage in over how long has it been? Like 11, 12, 13 years, something like that. I think it was 08, 09 is when it went up last. You know, we haven't raised the minimum wage. There's income inequality. There's people struggling. How could this be? And, you know, when you look at how much, I mean, think about how much you're paid or I think about how much I'm paid. Do you think you are overpaid? Um, Now, do you think you're underpaid? I mean, what should you be paid? What should someone else be paid? Now, in, in my opinion, it, it's, you know, you're paid based on your value. You know, you're, pay, you're paid based on what your employer or what your customer thinks you're worth. And by virtue of them paying you, they're telling you that you are actually worth that amount of money. Not anything, not anything more or not any less. And I think this is where we talk about how much you're worth and value. It's very subjective, right? You know, there's, there are some people that are convinced they're underpaid. And there are some people that are convinced that other people, certainly not themselves, but other people are overpaid, right? Well, it, it, it's subjective. And, and you know, there's, there's the classic argument, you know, how can we pay these CEOs billions of dollars when teachers can't get by and teachers have to pay for their own school supplies and um, minimum wage workers need to, uh, you know, get food stamps and be on welfare. I mean, how could this be? This doesn't make sense. Well, like I said, I, I'm of the belief that if you are getting paid that whatever amount you're getting paid, the person paying you is telling you that's what your value is to me. And you, by accepting that pay, are confirming and saying, yes, that's what I'm worth. And if you felt like you were underpaid, then you wouldn't take the job, right? Um, you would go find another job that paid more, that was more in line. But sometimes people think they're, pay- they're um, worth a lot. But when they go out into the marketplace, it turns out they're not worth as much as they thought they were. And then the same thing happens on the other side where – there are people that are are convinced that other people are overpaid, but a lot of times people that are overpaid, I mean, we could take, you know, you go in the world of sports is a really easy place to prove this out. There are bidding wars for talent. And some may say, you know, they're overpaid. Well, how could they be overpaid if there are two, three, four different employers that want to pay that person a ton of money? I mean, to me, that tells you that that's what their actual value is. I mean, it's not a perfect system. It's imperfect. It's subjective, not objective. So that's why we have these battles. So again, you know, I'm I'm doing the live stream. I'd love your comments and thoughts on this topic. So feel free to chime in. Just type them into the comments section on YouTube or on Facebook, and I'll read them on the air, and we'll make this a bit of a dialogue. Um, But yeah, in the end, you know, your value is is confirmed when you accept that job and it's mutual agreement on that wage. And sometimes people sell themselves short, right? They may think they're worth more, but then they take a job that really, you know, doesn't reflect their value. In other cases, sometimes people will take jobs that pay less than others, but simply because they're doing the work that they love or they're not as stressed out as they would be in a higher paying job. So it's interesting how we make those assessments, our own subjective criteria, and then can reconcile and and essentially rationalize what our real value is and what we're willing to take in exchange for that value. 
Uh, Bruce McCoy on the live stream chiming in. I improve my abilities to change jobs, to have better opportunities. Something my dad taught me. And your dad, uh, Bruce, was a very smart man. Lots of a great way to really test your value in the marketplace is to constantly be looking for job opportunities. And people that know how to play that game are reassessing and and every couple of years they might hop jobs, sometimes inside the company, but more often with other businesses. Because you could be being paid, and I'll just make some numbers up out of the air, $50,000 a year, and you find out that someone else is willing to pay you $75,000 a year. Well, of course, take that job, and then that confirms that's your value, $75,000, and the guy that was paying you $50,000 was underpaying you. And now you've confirmed that your value really is $75,000 because someone else agrees with you and is willing to pay that amount. Um, so it is subjective. It is a little bit loose, but in the end, what we agree on kind of confirms what that person's value is. Um, and, and in many ways, this is why I'm a big supporter of, and I encourage this a lot in the podcast of entrepreneurship, owning a business, being self-employed, even gig working, because it puts the individual or the business owner in a position where they are constantly seeking the best value and they are more accurately getting a reflection of what their value really is worth in the marketplace because there isn't a middleman in the way. You're not an employee of a company where the empl- where the company is, is kind of taking some off the top of what your value really is in the market. You can have direct connection to the people that pay you when you are self-employed, contractor, gig worker, et cetera. And that's why one of the reasons, one of many reasons why I'm such a big advocate of people thinking bigger, you know, having more confidence in themselves and really pursuing opportunities where they can be paid more and they can realize a greater value in the market. Um, Steve Dow chimes in, a $15 flat minimum wage across the whole country doesn't make sense to me. Makes more sense to tie it to cost of living in each state. And then Yuri Bolin chimes in, I agree with Steve, it will cripple certain states. Now, the minimum wage, let's let's take a little bit of a tangent on this one, because this is a hot topic, the minimum wage. And just so we're clear on this, and I'll just set terms, because I think we all know this, but I'll just set it uh, uh, so we're all on the same page. There's a federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. And then many states will add their own layer to increase the minimum wage. And that's why the minimum wage varies from state to state. But even in some counties and some cities, they add their own layers. I mean, I think the minimum wage in San Francisco is already $15 an hour, if I recall. And in, what is it here in San Diego? I think it's either 13 or $14 an hour, depending on the size of company you're working for which again is kind of crazy. You'd think it would be the same rule regardless of what kind of company you work for. But this has been one of the big challenges, right? With Congress, with Joe Biden. Joe Biden promised $15 an hour. And I think he realized pragmatically that that was a big ask, right? And you know, to the point that both Steve and Yuri are bringing up, different states have different costs of living. So I think I went through this in a previous podcast because- a $15 hour minimum wage in the state of California, you know, that's pretty close to what people are already getting now. 
Okay, so not a big change. But if you were in Joe Manchin's state, West Virginia, you know, Joe Manchin, probably one of the more conservative Democrats, kind of one of the few remaining blue dog Democrats, he's the one that's objecting to raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour because his state, which I'm going to assume has not added layers on top, is probably still at $7.25. So for his state to radically, essentially more than double the minimum wage, that would rock the world of his local economy for a lot of reasons, um, both good and bad. But, you know, he's trying to figure out the right balance. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, really, $15 an hour in an urban area like San Francisco, I mean, that's really hard to get by on that. I mean, you could... If you're trying to make an argument that we need a living wage, which is a debatable point, but if the minimum wage has to be a living wage, well, in San Francisco, $15 an hour is not even close to enough to really have your own apartment and be able to you know, cover all of your expenses and, um, with a 40-hour job. I don't think you could do it at $15 an hour when you're paying rent that's just so you know astronomically high in San Francisco. So – and. And so I, I agree you know, with Stephen Urey. I think the minimum wage, um, it, you know, if we're going to have it, needs to vary um, depending on the cost of living. And that's where it come, becomes even more subjective. But really, if – and this is the challenge with the minimum wage, in my opinion. Like I said, a person's value is based on what two people can mutually agree to. So if a person is employed at a minimum wage, and let's just say it's $15 an hour, then – that employee and that employer are both mutually agreeing that that employee is worth $15 an hour, even if there is a minimum wage. But if that employer said, you know what, this new employee doesn't really have the skills to do the job, um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they have trouble and um, with communication or the trouble with technology or they have trouble just operating simple things. Maybe they've never had a track record of showing up on to jobs on time, et cetera. They might say, you know what, this guy's going to need a lot of handholding, a lot of training. He's really not worth $15 an hour. He's probably only worth $10 an hour. Well, now because of the minimum wage, that business won't employ that person. And now that person isn't going to get a $15 an hour job. They're going to be unemployed. This is the downside of the minimum wage. I think that if that company were to hire that person at $10 an hour, very quickly, that person could be trained, gain skills, gain experience, build confidence. And then suddenly they're making $15 an hour, $18 an hour. And if they play the game that Bruce just outlined, they can switch employers and work their way up. But they can't get started if you can't get started. Um, and that's why I think the minimum wage, we have to be very careful with it because it has a downside. Because we think about the minimum wage, oh, this would be great for the people that are already working. And if they're still working once the wage is increased. But, you know, what's the labor participation rate in, this, in, in the United States? It's like in the low 60 percent, I think, which means that. 30-something percent of people aren't working at all. Um, many of them you know, have legitimate reasons for not working because maybe they're a stay-at-home parent in a two-parent two household where one parent earns enough to cover. Um, they might be a student. You know, There's a lot of reasons why they might not be working. But there's definitely a certain section of society that's not working because 
they gave up because they can't, because they can't find a job because no one will employ them. And then when the minimum wage goes up, it makes it even harder for them to get that first job or to get their foot in the door. Um, so I, I always think about how can we bring the people that are at the very, very bottom and help them rise up? And the best way we can is by letting them get employed so they can generate experience and skills and build themselves up so they can then play the game that Bruce talked about, where they can then switch jobs and parlay one job into another. And then suddenly you're getting into a position where you're self-sufficient and the minimum wage almost becomes sort of a moot point. Um, Bruce McCoy on the live stream said, yep, Governor Brown once said the minimum wage is the right thing to do, but it's bad for the economy. There is a difference in our moral obligations to our fellow man and what and what its consequential effect our actions have on our society. So, yeah, so this this is the thing is you can debate policy, right? You can debate the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of you know, how the minimum wage works in an economic system. You can talk about should it be 15 or $12 an hour. You can even debate whether we need a minimum wage or not. In the end, what this always comes down to is morality. You know, what do you believe is right? What is justice? Um, what is the right thing to, uh, for companies to be paying? And some people believe that if you work 40 hours a week, you should not live in poverty, period, end of discussion. And to them, the minimum wage is a moral issue. There are other people that flip it the other way and they say, yeah, you know, what people are paid is a moral issue. And that means people should have the freedom to pay what they believe the other person is worth and then reach mutual agreement, which would be an argument to not have a minimum wage. So um, that's the thing is, and I've always, I've learned this is that when having political conversation, political debate, it's often most powerful to make your case from, from a moral basis. And you know, who does that very, very well is AOC, um, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with her policies, but I love her style. Um, I love how she is bold and brave, and she takes hardcore moral positions on issues. I love that in her. Um, I just don't necessarily agree with the actual policies that she promotes. Um, Yuri Bolin on the live stream chiming in, if $15 an hour happens in every state, small business will die and corporations won't hire anymore. And the economy will make the seventies look like the good old days. Well, here, you know, here's an interesting angle with the minimum wage is that do you notice that Jeff Bezos, you know, the owner of Amazon or the I guess I should say he's the CEO and soon to be former CEO of Amazon. Um, they support the minimum wage. And you're thinking, how in the hell? Why would Amazon support the minimum wage? You know, you, you always think of, I mean, people characterize Amazon as, oh, my God, those greedy bastards and they're working their employees to the bone. And, you know, they got and, and there is some legitimate criticism of, of Amazon's policies. But still, you would think the way Amazon is characterized that, that they would be paying like, you know, seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour if they could get away with it. Well, Amazon has a $15 an hour minimum wage for every employee right where you start, no matter where you are in the United States. And they actually start giving uh, benefits right away on day one. And so you might think, 
okay, well, then it's cool that Amazon's doing it. They chose to raise their own minimum wage, not the, the law, but Amazon's own policy. They chose to raise it to $15 an hour. You know, good for them. And, you know, they're going to recruit better people. And in fact, I think I just read Costco raised their minimum wage to $16 an hour. But again, that's their own policy. But think of it the other way. And this gets to Yuri's point. If and you hear the story, Amazon is crushing small business. They're just destroying them. Well, if the minimum wage is raised to $15 an hour, can Amazon afford to pay that? Well, absolutely they can. Okay. But can a mom and pop shop, you know, down the street here on Poway Road that has a restaurant, can, you know, or even like a small business that might be selling products that are also sold on Amazon, can they compete? Probably not. I mean, those are the ones that are going to get crushed when the minimum wage goes up. It's the smaller business, the mom and pops, the ones that are less likely to be able to afford it, especially if it's a radical change like it would be in West Virginia, where the minimum wage would essentially double overnight. Um, so it's funny how you find corporate powers that seem to project um, do-gooder um, policies and PR, but in the end, they're looking at it as a strategic advantage for their company. And then ironically, a lot of the people that um, support the minimum wage, uh, because they legitimately and morally are looking out for the little guy and want to help the poor and want to help them rise up, sometimes they don't realize the unintended consequences of how the minimum wage actually not only heart destroys jobs, but specifically jobs in small businesses, in mom and pop businesses, in you know, those little local community businesses that you have on your main street. They're the ones that get su the suffer on this whole thing. Um, in fact, I think, didn't it, the CBO, um, the Congressional Budget Office just said that if the minimum wage of $15 an hour is implemented, it's going to help some people. I think they said it was going to help like 900,000 people like rise out of poverty, which sounds great. But 1.4 million jobs would be lost. So, you know, there's always a downside to these things that sometimes I wonder if minimum wage advocates really factor into this. So anyways, I'm uh, digressing. I'm, <laughs> I wasn't really planning on talking about the minimum wage, but I'm glad we are. Um, just another side story on this. Um, when I was a kid, uh, when I was 12 years old, I had a paper route. And, uh, you know, again, I lived in Burlingame, which was on the San Francisco Peninsula. And I had a paper route for the San Francisco Examiner. And I would, it was like the, I don't know, seven or eight blocks surrounding my house. It was like really local. It was perfect for me as a 12-year-old. And every day, you know, literally every day I worked, I got my bike and I walked, I got the papers, I folded them, I stuffed the bags, wrapped the bags around the handlebars on my bicycle. And then I'd ride around the community and throwing papers onto people's front doors. And yeah, I broke a few windows and I had to pay for. And then of course it was raining. I had to put the plastic sleeve over the paper. And, and then the, the amazing thing, I mean, if you think about this is not only did I work every day, okay, literally I did. And then on, because the examiner was Monday through Saturday evening paper. And then on Sundays, it was the Chronicle Examiner, which was the morning, the Sunday morning paper, which was this massive beast of a paper that we had to deliver. But then at night, I would uh, go out and collect. So here I am, a 12-year-old boy out 
you know, and granted, it's in my local neighborhood, but still, I'm a 12-year-old boy at dark knocking on people's doors collecting money. You know, and and then I was going from house to house and my my pockets were like full of cash and checks and all kinds of other things as I went collecting money. And then, you know, I couldn't collect everybody in one night. I'd have to do multiple nights. Sometimes um, I'd have to go back to other houses because no one was home or sometimes people couldn't pay. And they say, oh, can you come back Tuesday? You know, um, that sort of thing. I mean, that took a lot of effort. Back then, I remember the minimum wage was three dollars and thirty five cents an hour. And I was making probably about a dollar an hour, if you were to figure it out, um, considering how much time I put into it. But I was happy I had that job, and I learned a lot from that job. And then when I was 14, um, I was working every day, and back then I was racing BMX bicycles. And so on weekends, I liked to go to these races, and that was a big part of my life. But I had to deliver the newspaper, and and it got in the way of racing BMX. And so there was a restaurant um, you know, about a block from my house and they hired me. I, I think a friend of a friend was working there and I needed someone. They hired me to be a dishwasher. And at the time, the minimum wage was $3 and 35 cents an hour. And I got paid $2 an hour under the table. And because I was 14, I was not legally allowed to work. Um, I had to, you know, normally you had to go get a work permit and you had to be, I think at least 15 or 15 and a half to be legally allowed to work. But I ended up working for $2 an hour under the table because he would just hand me. I worked a five hour shift. I think it was from four to nine on Tuesdays and four to nine on Thursdays. And he would hand me, you know, $10. You know, so it was $20 a week. I was making approximately a little bit more than I made on my paper route, but for dramatically less time. And so my hourly wage probably went from, well, my hourly wage was $2 an hour, but before it was like a dollar an hour. So I was ecstatic when I got that job. And, um, and again, it taught me skills and I learned to be a good employee, a good teammate, showing up for work on time, fulfilling my promise. And, and that was really great for me. But you know, technically it was illegal. And frankly, you look back on it and how in the hell did 12 year olds doing paper routes, um, you know, and, and, and collecting at night, it's, it's shocking that that was allowed then too. But, um, but anyways, I digress. That's, that was my minimum wage story. Uh, Yuri Boland said, don't forget your combo meal will now be 10 bucks when it used to be six. Well, yeah, I mean, prices will go up, but really the argument against minimum wage is really, that's important, you know, that the prices of goods will go up, but there's a lot of other factors that I think are more critical because sometimes prices will remain the same because it's a competitive marketplace, right? So they're going to be price competitive to the best that they can because someone else is selling a combo meal across the street for another price. Um, and then if they have to keep their prices lower to be competitive and then their cost basis goes up, well, then that's how those businesses go out of business because they can no longer be profitable. Because if they start selling a combo meal for 10 bucks and meanwhile, McDonald's can still sell it for six, well, McDonald's can weather the storm. They, they can pay more than a mom and pop place, you know, down the street that, you know, a sandwich shop in your local community. So it's interesting. But anyways, um, back to my discussion with, uh, with our loyal listener that sent me the private message on Facebook. We, 
we're talking about this, you know, what are people worth and what's their value? And is this just, and this is what we need. Is this a, what we need in a humane society? What's the right way to do it? And you know, he wasn't necessarily arguing that what we have is wrong. He was just asking, you know, fair questions to try to elicit discussion. And so we had a nice friendly discussion online, but we both came to the agreement that there is a game that is being played. Um, and in, in, in many ways, there are people, well, let me just say this. In many ways, life is like a game. Um, and it's about, you know, we're out there living our life. We have the liberty to live and we're all pursuing our happiness, right? But there are rules in the game. There are things that you can do and can't do. And for a lot of people, your I guess your happiness is really the points that you accrue along the way, right? Um, now, the subset of happiness might be, um, you know, your health or your, it might be the amount of income or wealth that you've attained. I mean, maybe it could be your, you know, if, if your job is consistent with your values. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can measure it. But in, in the end, it's there's a game being played and there's a game that's being constructed. In many ways, the game that's constructed, we could say, is rigged to favor the rich and to disadvantage the poor. And we can talk about that. Um, but there are people that are out there that are basically playing the game and they're playing it to win and they're doing it very successfully. Meanwhile, there are other people that are trying to play the game and struggling. And then there are other people that have no idea there's a game. <laughs> they have no idea that, you know, we should be thinking strategically about the decisions we make in life to essentially better ourselves so we have a better life. But it was funny that we agreed that there was a game. Um, but then we asked ourselves, should the, there be a different game? Should the rules of the game be different? And that really is the political discussion, right, that we always have around this. And I've always contended that if we want to talk about changing the rules of the game, um, and, and, you know, that could be minimum wage, that could be democratic socialism, it could be a lot of things, right, that are always being the hot topics being discussed, you know, single payer health care, et cetera. Um, I've always contended, as long as we don't change the rules to violate people's inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then by all means, you know, let's talk about changing the rules of the game. And But I've always contended that, you know, the game right now is very rigged. And a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, it's rigged for the rich and the rich. They're the ones that buy off the politicians. And and yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, the, the rich are the ones that um, are essentially buying off the politicians to enact law or to push forward regulation that's going to rig the system to their benefit. And in many ways, they also set up rules and regulations that disadvantage the poor. We've talked about this before. I mean, like the war on drugs. I mean, think about that. Like you could be busted for possession, something completely nonviolent. You get thrown in jail and then you're in jail for God knows how long. In a lot of cases, drug penalties have mandatory minimums and certain drugs like crack cocaine versus powder cocaine or, you know, they're disproportionate. Um, you could be in jail for a really long time. And then when you get out of jail, you've got a scarlet letter. You're branded as a felon and you can't get a job or you can't get a good job. Um, you're screwed. Meanwhile, you might have a wife or a girlfriend and then you've had children together and that suddenly you've got a single parent that's trying to raise these kids. 
they're scrambling because they can't do it on their own. Then they get on federal assistance and then they find themselves trapped in this. And then it creates a multi-generational cycle as a result of this. I mean, there's other things like the quality of our education system doesn't give people the skills necessary to justify getting paid a minimum wage. I mean, there are some kids that are graduating from school that can't read, can't write, can't do math. I mean, it's a shame. And a lot of times it's because the system is rigged against them. Um, What else? I mean, the housing, we talk about that here in the state of California. I mean, housing is so damn expensive. Um, And it's because the system is essentially rigged against, you know, the low income people because, there's a lot of nimbyism. There's a lot of objection to construction and development. And so, you know, it's Econ 101. You got huge demand to be in San Diego or in California. And then there's resistance to build. So there's a constriction of supply. And as a result, prices go up. Um, and that's why rent's so damn expensive. And it keeps going up. And then suddenly people are living out of their cars or living in the streets because the game was rigged to essentially benefit those property owners that saw their property value go up because they were able to block out competition. And that's how they rigged the system. Um, gosh, I mean, we can go through lots of things. Civil forfeiture law, where people have their cars seized uh, for a simple traffic infraction, and then suddenly they can't go to work because they can't get there because they don't have a job, and then they lose their job, and their car gets repossessed, and they get fined, and they go into this terrible um, you know, circling the drain, and they get trapped in poverty. There's so many examples of that. And then on the up, on the high end, there are people it's rigged for them where, I mean, we see these um, corporate bailouts, right? <laughs> you know, we see President Trump getting a $500 billion, you know, slush fund to hand out to his buddies at the beginning of this COVID crisis. We see uh, banks and major corporations getting bailed out while small business on Main Street doesn't get bailed out at all. I mean, so we see regulations being set up that, essentially prevent Medicare from negotiating prices and keeping prices artificially high. That hurts the poor, but at the same time benefits the people that work for big pharma who typically make a lot of money, especially those that are the investors or in the manager class or perhaps even the owners and investors of those businesses. So the system is rigged. It traps wealth at the top and it, or it protects wealth at the top and it also traps people at the bottom. And so A lot of times people jump to, we need to raise the minimum wage. That's how we're going to solve this income inequality mess. I always say, just unwind all of that rigging, you know, unwind the traps that keep people in poverty, unwind the manipulation that's rigged at the top. And right away, that's going to be a huge help. Um, So anyways, uh, (laughs) so, you know, our rules, they're not, the rules we have now aren't fair, but you know, what's fair? I mean, that's the thing. It's, What's fair for one person may not be fair to the other. It's just it's just very subjective. But I just love the idea of the game. And that's I want to talk about that in this podcast, because there is a game to be played. And there are some people that are playing it really well. Some people are just killing it. Uh, There are other people that, like I said, they have no idea there's a game to be played. They have no idea that there's this system that exists. And whether you agree with the system or disagree with the system, there are decisions that you can make in your life to give yourself a better opportunity to prosper. And in some cases, these are you know, games that you can play as an individual or as a family. But in other cases, these are things that you can do as a business to play the game. And, and 
here is a really interesting story, and um, it's about Tesla. Um, so again, I, I welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Feel free to ask questions. You know, this is Friday, so feel free to ask me anything, um, whether it's about this topic or even something else. Um, and I'll, I'll read them on the air and we can have more discussion. But I encourage the dialogue. So um, this is a really interesting story about Tesla. And this came out, gosh, probably two, three weeks ago. And it was fascinating. And it kind of goes to this point about the game. And the the headline in the story was that that Tesla is making profit, but from some place that you would never expect that they would. And it went, goes on to say that they are making money not from selling cars to people. You know, the, in fact, their car business as a standalone entity is losing money, you know, selling Tesla Model 3s and Tesla Model S and Model X. And that even... You know, even then the game is rigged, right? Because, you know, individuals and, you know, mea culpa, we're one of them because uh, we have two electric cars. We get rebates, you know, from the federal government that subsidizes the price of that car. But still, Tesla gets the full retail price. You know, part of it comes from the individual. Part of it comes from the rebate. But in the end, te- Tesla is getting full price for their car and they don't negotiate. You know, it's just... It's like buying a something at In-N-Out Burger. I mean, you go through the menu, and the menu is what the menu is, and that's what you pay for their cars. But still, they aren't making money. And you're thinking, how could this be? Because Tesla is the hottest car on the market. And you know, maybe they're figuring out things with their production. But they're not making money on a standalone basis with Tesla's um, you know, all the electric cars. And they have by far the biggest market share of electric vehicles. It's, I think it's like around 80%. Um, how could they be losing money? Well, more importantly, how is it that at the end of the quarter, they're actually reporting a profit when they're losing money selling cars? Wow, that doesn't, doesn't compute. So what, what's going on is, is that there are 11 states that require automakers to sell a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles now and into, 20, into 2025. So not just Tesla, but you know, Ford has a quota to meet. Chevrolet has a quota to meet. Um, you know, Range Rover. I mean, any all these companies have quotas that they've got to meet um, to sell a certain number of zero emission cars. Now, zero emission means that they're either an electric car or hydrogen powered car, that they're not powered by fossil fuels, not by gas, not by diesel. So even a Prius wouldn't count, right? Because a Prius has a battery and an engine, and a gasoline-powered engine. Even my old BMW i3 wouldn't count because that had a little gasoline engine in it um, when the battery ran out. So a zero-emission car has no emissions. So a lot of these companies don't sell those cars, or if they do sell the cars, they're only a tiny fraction of their total sales. So what do they do? So if those companies don't sell a certain percentage of their vehicles as um, zero-emission, they have to buy regulatory credits from another automaker that meets those requirements, such as Tesla. So this kind of goes, it's a little bit like the cap and trade deal with, um, with emissions. If Ford is not selling enough, and I don't know what the percentage is, you know, is it, I'll make up a number, 10%. If it's 10%, um, if they're not selling 10% of their cars as zero emission, well, then they got to make up that gap. So they have to buy these credits from a company that has a surplus 
of these credits. And of course, Tesla has a surplus because all of their cars are zero emission. So it turns out then that Tesla is making, how much was it? $3.3 billion over the course of the last five years, nearly half of that in 2020 alone, simply selling regulatory credits to all these other automobile manufacturers. I mean, they're not even selling a product. It's just like they're selling a certificate that they're giving away their regulatory credits. And it, you know, it's part of the game that exists in that space. It's a game set up by the regulatory code, but it now creates a lot of these perverse incentives. So now Tesla is making money, not by selling cars, by selling credits. Meanwhile, these other companies, if they can't sell enough zero emission cars, and they may, or maybe they don't want to, they figure, well, I'll just go buy them from Tesla and then I can be compliant. But it's just bizarre. Um, so, yeah. So last year, Tesla made $1.6 billion in regulatory credits, but their total income was only $721 million. So that means that they lost, gosh, almost a billion dollars just on their car sales, but they made it up. So the, they're losing money on cars. So it's, it's an interesting example of how Tesla is playing the game and other companies are playing the game. But let's take it to a personal level. And I've talked to you about this. I, I'm trying to play the game. So we have two electric cars. Uh, part of it is because I love electric vehicle technology. It's great. And these cars are fun to drive. They got all the cool gizmos in them. And in a lot of ways, I always equate it to like driving a video game because they're fun and they're fast as hell. I mean, you, you, you hit the accelerator. It's like turbocharged G-forces. You get sucked into the back of your chair or your car seat. Um, driving electric vehicles is really cool. It's fun. Um, I mean, I told you, I, I've, I've gone on a number of long road trips and I get this you know, perverse joy of going out into the desert and finding those very remote charging stations and seeing if I can make it. Um, I know it's like a treasure hunt map. I, I get a thrill from that. They're, just, they're, they're wonderful cars. Um, and the other great benefit is, is that if you get an electric vehicle, you get tax rebates. Um, you get to drive on the HOA lane, you know, that carpool lane in the middle of the 15 freeway for free. You don't even have to pay because, you know, single drivers don't have to pay unless you're an electric vehicle. Uh, and then there's businesses all around that are giving you free charging, giving you primo parking spots. We got discounts on our San Diego gas and electric rates. I mean, there's just a whole slew of things if you buy an electric car. Now, you may or may not agree with that. You might think, why are we subsidizing these automobile manufacturers? And really, from a policy perspective, from a philosophical perspective, I don't agree with that at all. I don't think, you know, taxpayers should be subsidizing other people's cars, especially when it tends to be more wealthy people that are buying the electric vehicles in the first place. Um, but it's a game. And if you're not playing the game, you're going to be set up to lose the game. So, I figure, why not play the game? Um, if if people are going to throw money at me, I'd be a fool not to take it, especially if it's for a car that I want to drive anyways. So we do that. And then we went a step further. We have solar. In fact, we got our solar before our electric vehicles. Um, so we're playing the game with solar. And I talked about that a couple of podcasts ago, how we've re-optimized like when we charge our car and during what times. So now we're playing the game with SDG&E, where we're 
selling off our surplus energy from our solar panels during the day when we're using very little energy, selling that back into the grid. And we're charging our cars between midnight and 6 a.m. when the time of use rates are really, really low. So we're buying low, selling high. And we're playing that game with SDG&E. We're playing the solar game to get that. And even though we get rebates for that, you know, that system works out great for us. It keeps our electric rates low. And also it it fuels our cars, which we're also playing the game with that. So there's a lot of ways you can do this to really benefit yourself, but it's a game. And And I think if you think of it in those terms, it really opens your eyes to how this all works. Now, here's a really crazy story of this. And this is a, a friend of mine from college, and he's a good guy, and I, I've lost touch with him, but um, a really good guy. And he worked for a defense contractor here in um, – actually, not a defense contractor. I should say a government contractor because they, they worked on things that were defense and non-defense related here in San Diego. And he was an engineer and did great work, and he's an employee. He was well-paid and all good. Well – he decided he figured out a way to play the game. And so what he did is he decided to be a gig worker instead. He figured if he could create a business and then essentially be an employee of his business that's contracted out to his employer, it could be a win-win. And it turned out that this was unbelievable how this worked. His wife is, um, I'm not going to say what race or ethnicity, but she is not white and her ethnicity is not from America. Um, So they set up a corporation, established his wife as the owner. So then suddenly this is a business that is minority owned, female owned, and they were contracting out to my friend's employer and essentially contracting out the services of my friend who was and is now doing the same thing he was doing before, but instead of as an employee, he's working as an employee, instead of employee for his uh, employer, he's now working as an employee of his own company contracted out to his employer, but doing the same work. So then what happens is, is that he's making more money because he can charge more as a result of this which is true of consultants and, and contractors, you can usually make a far greater hourly wage. But then at the same time, his employer, who's a federal contractor, was able to check boxes and said, yep, we got a female-owned business. Yep, we got a minority-owned business. And then they were more compliant and were able to get more federal contracts as and, and state government contracts as a result. You know, So that was incredible. And, and this is a guy that was playing the game and doing it really well. And frankly, his employer was doing it really well too. And it turned out to be win-win, but it's just, it's kind of sad that you have to do that. But the, but if you don't do it, then you're missing out on an opportunity. You may not agree that, you know, we can debate whether or not, you, you know, a certain percentage of government contracts need to go to minority owned or female owned or, or whatever quota system you believe is right or wrong. But the fact is, is that it exists. So you would be foolish not to take advantage of that, especially if it was a win-win for you and your employer. And that's what he did. And it's incredible. I mean, uh, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. He did this, I think, probably about 15 years ago. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I learned about that. I learned about a lot of other people doing things. I'm like, wow, man, 
I'm not playing the game. I'm not really aware of all these opportunities that I can make different choices. And then suddenly, you know, you could put yourself in a better spot. Um, a couple more comments on the live stream from Pete Neal. Nobody has written a song about a Tesla yet. And that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, gosh, there's been songs about, um, you know, about so many different cars, you know, GTOs. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what Pat Johnson has, right? Isn't that a GTO? Like the Oldsmobile 442? Is that the same thing? I'm getting my uh, terms mixed up. Um, Corvettes, is is the Route 66, does that have Corvette in it? I'm not sure. But I know, yeah, there are lots of songs about cars. I mean, by all means, please chime in on the live stream. Let me know. I'm having a mental block. But yeah, there's never been a song about a Tesla. There should be. There absolutely should be uh, about electric cars. I mean, because there's so much lyrical content you can include in that. Um, Steve Dow on the live stream says, I think laws that result in Tesla getting paid via credits are smart. It uses capitalism to move towards the hopefully shared goal of moving off fossil fuels. Other options could be much more draconian. Ultimately, I think some of those other measures might make sense as well. You know, there's all kinds of this go- things going on with this. Like here in California, I think starting in what, 2035, auto dealers can no longer sell fossil fuel cars, new ones. They could sell used ones. People could sell used ones. If Pete wanted to sell his, his uh, Corvette Calypso to a private party, not that he ever would, but if he wanted to, he could. Um, but I, I think new auto dealers starting in 2035, you know, 14 years from now, when Fernando Tatis's contract runs out, um, they won't be able to sell new cars. So that's one way. Maybe some people think that's draconian. But Pete, I think, to, uh, Steve, to your point, I think, yeah, you know, this whole idea of trading credits, you know, it, it's working towards a noble goal. This is the morality of it, right? The moral goal of having a clean environment, you know, and reducing pollution and helping solve climate change. And that's that's the right thing to do, right? That's justice. That's good. And so again, you look at, a lot of these policies, really, there's always a moral reason that these things are being driven. And really, the most effective politicians are able to tap into that. Again, that's why I love AOC um, on that level. And Bernie does a good job of that, too. Um, but it's not really capitalism, though, is it? <laughs> I mean, capitalism is about free markets and private property. And this is about buying and selling regulatory papers to be compliant with government rules. Um Gosh, I remember, this is another interesting story, is back in the 1970s, um, back when trucking was heavily regulated, I mean, hallelujah, Jimmy Carter, the great deregulator, he deregulated airlines, he deregulated trucking, Jimmy Carter even deregulated beer. Thank God we have so many great craft breweries as a result. But anyways, before he deregulated trucking, back then you had to have a certain regulatory license in order to do trucking. And there were a limited number of these licenses. And what people had these licenses and had no trucks at all. And they would just sell their license or they would lease their license to other companies to use it in exchange for money because they were playing the game of this regulatory requirement. And as a result, they were able to make money in trucking and have no trucks (laughs) at all. I mean, it's like Tesla making money in the car business without, you know, by virtue of not selling cars, by virtue of these credits. So I 
understand it's kind of capitalism-like because people are buying and trading these credits, but really it's it's because of the regulations and the, the official definition of capitalism really is free market. Um, so I don't know if I would go that far to call it capitalism, but I get your point, Steve. I understand that point. Um, and, you know, for me, I got an electric car because I love the technology. I was cutting edge. I wanted to play the game. And yeah, you know, I wanted to help the environment. I mean, that wasn't my driving reason. That wasn't my number one reason, but it was just sort of like icing on the cake, you know? And the more I've done, you know, with our EVs, our solar energy, we've got LEDs all throughout our house. Um, We do conservation of water. We do mulching. We do lots of recycling. Um, We have solar, not only for our electricity, we have solar for our pool. So I'm like... I'm turning into a tree hugger. (laughs) I kind of like it. Um, But I also like the gamification of it because it's kind of fun. And now I'm conserving on my water bill. I'm conserving on my energy bill with SDG&E. I'm I'm more effectively playing the game. Um, But at any rate, so Pete Neal, also on the live stream, don't take it personal, (laughs) but Volvo doesn't have a song either. Um, What what are the what are the ones that have songs? I mean, yeah, Little Red Corvette, right? Of course, Pete. A uh, little red Corvette, uh, you know, uh, oh, what's the, what's the, my Maserati does 185. I li- lost my license. Now I don't drive. That's a life's been good by Joe Walsh. Um, what else? What other songs have car names in them? I think there's a song. Now this is going back to my punk rock days. Is it called the? Was it the dead milkman? And I think they had a song called bitchin Camaro. <laughs> I think that's what that was. I'm not sure, but, uh, yeah, lots of there's lots of great songs about cars. Um, all right, we're rolling here. Steve Dow says regulated capitalism. Okay, well, regulated capitalism, in my opinion, is really a mixed economy. And that's what we have in America. We don't have capitalism. We don't have socialism. We don't have fascism. We've just got kind of a mix of all of that. And the ratios are different. And really, most every country is some form of a mixed economy. It's just a matter of the degree, the ratio of all those things. Regulated capitalism, in my opinion, is, yeah, it's, it's that regulatory aspect to it is really socialist in a way because essentially Tesla is getting bailed out because they're able to sell these regulatory credits. It's like a social safety net for Tesla. So, In many ways, regulated capitalism is a blend of capitalism and socialism, and it's really not capitalism. It's this, for lack of a better term, a Frankenstein. It's like this other thing. Many people will call it cronyism, especially when it's used for nefarious purposes to enrich large corporations where they rig the system, like the way Big Pharma has rigged the pharmaceutical industry and prevented the negotiation of prices in Medicare Part D that's that's not capitalism. That's like cronyism. That's that's not capitalist at all. Um, so it's funny how pe- some people say, oh, that's crony capitalism. But it's not even that. I, I, I refer to it as cronyism or corporatism. And really, that's what fascism is, right? It's when corporation power, corporate power and government power kind of come together. And you know, fascism means a lot of other things, too. But um when I think of capitalism, I think of it in its classic definition, laissez-faire, free market, unregulated. To me, that's capitalism. Um, 
But yeah, you, other people still argue that what we have is a version of capitalism. So that's fair. Um, here's another way that you can play the game. And this is something that our family did. And we were, um, gosh, my wife and I, we got married and we had a condo in Carmel Mountain Ranch and we didn't have children. This is back in the days when we were dinks. Remember those, you know, dual income, no kids. Uh, we were dinks. And uh, that was a whole different economic model back then. <laughs> um, but uh, love my children. Absolutely love my children. But, you know, children cost money and, and, uh, but it's worth every penny. Believe me, it is, but it's a different economic model. Well, anyways, um, uh, we were deciding, you know, you know, we're, we're going to have kids at some point and we wanted to move out of the condo and buy a house. Where were we going to buy? And we made a strategic decision to move to Poway, which is where we live now. And we've lived in Poway now since 1996. This is our second home in Poway. Um, we used to live way out on the end of Garden Road in Sycamore Creek community. And now we live kind of in the Green Valley community in Poway. Um, and we made a strategic decision to move here specifically because the schools are really good. <laughs> and you now granted, you know, Poway Unified School District covers a much bigger area, but uh, bigger than just Poway alone. But we knew that, you know, God, if you're already paying taxes as it is, especially in California, you don't want to live in an area that has a weak school system so that either you have to send your children to get a subpar education or you have to pay out of pocket for private school. So we said we should live in a, in a community that has a really good school system. And so that's why we moved to Poway. And there's a lot of people that made that decision as well. They live here because the schools are so good. Now, if if you follow some of my previous podcasts, we've had conversations about the schools in Poway and there's some good, bad and ugly. But, you know, generally speaking, especially on academics alone, you know, Poway's pretty good. Um, and um, we chose to move here and to, for reasons just to kind of play that game. So I don't know if you've ever done similar things like this to play the game to the best of your ability. You know, another one that I've done, and this is another reason why I encourage entrepreneurship and gig working and contracting and self-employment. Because if you incorporate, you can play the game. You can now, um, you know, change the way you handle certain expenses, things that maybe you had spent money on out of your personal money. You can now spend that money legitimately through your business. Um, and that works. And you can do that ethically and stay in the lane. Um, but you can now be paying for these expenses pre-tax rather than post-tax. Pre-tax within the, you know, income or profitability, you know, structure of your business, like, for example, your car. Um, if you're able to expense that as a business expense, which I do, because the, the, with the exception of my, my road trips, all of my miles are like with, for clients because I'm always going to my client offices uh, visiting or I'm doing work for clients. So you can play the game to move some of your expenses within the scope of the corporation, do it legitimately, legally, ethically. And that's a, a great way to do it. And um, so we do that. And and I think there's a lot of other people have, have done similar things. So there's ways to play the game. So, But I think it, it, you have to do it ethically. You have to do it um, without really not just obviously not we can't violate the law, but you can't manipulate the system in such a way that while it may be enriching you, it's harming someone else. 
And to me, I, that's where you cross the line. And there are some people that do play the game that way. And I think President Trump, as a business owner, um, he has done that. You know, he has hired, you know, contractors, plumbers, electricians to help him build these big office buildings. And then he doesn't pay them. He stiffs them. And he gets away with it because of the corporate power. And then he can stiff them and declare bankruptcy because he can manipulate the system, even though he has a lot of money. Um, and he ends up screwing people that legitimately work for him and provided a service. I mean, that's wrong. That's immoral. That's unethical. But there are ways that you can do it ethically. And I still would encourage people to consider that. So, um, gosh, I mean, there's so much we could talk about now. We're at 59 minutes. Um, I do want to talk about the stimulus because uh, I think that's a big story. And and this was uh, from our, our you know regular Facebook. I guess he's more of a you know video Facebook YouTube uh, watcher Pat Johnson, and he recommended this in our last podcast. He says you should talk about the stimulus and all the stuff that's in the stimulus, not just the good stuff, but also the crazy stuff. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So let's go through that a bit. Um, so we're going to shift gears talking all about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that's currently being debated. And I think, has the House approved it? They might have. And I know it's going to be going to the Senate here real soon. And then, you know, Joe Biden's going to sign it. And I, I'm sure they're going to debate some of the finer details. But actually, a lot of times they don't debate these things at all, right? It's usually pre-negotiated. This is one of the things that Justin Amash, who was a former congressman from Michigan, he always complained about this. He says, usually bills came before the House of Representatives and we could debate them. We could add amendments to them. And there was this legislative process. They don't really do that anymore. It's like the, the Senate and House leaders and perhaps the president or a member of his team, they meet offsite exclusively and they work it out. They pre-negotiate everything and then they kind of walk in to with a bill that's the whole enchilada. And that's how we end up with these omnibus spending bills. And that's how we're ending up with this $1.9 trillion house stimulus. So I'm going to share with you, at least initially, what's in it kind of from a, the stuff that's in it that they want you to know about. And then there's a the stuff that's in it that they probably don't want you to know about. We'll go over that last. But the stuff that's in the stimulus bill that they want you to want you to know, the first one is, is that people are going to get a $1,400 check. Now, this is all part of that promise of $2,000. And this is a big topic in the, the Georgia Senate race, right? Where if you vote for John Ossoff or, or Reverend Warnock for Senate, then you're going to get $2,000. Um, it was literally buying votes. But uh, because those evil Republicans, they won't give you the money. When in fact, you know, the Republicans agreed to the $600 stimulus. Trump wanted to give everyone $2,000. You know, and again, I'm no Trump fan, but he wanted to give everyone $2,000. And even in the stimulus bill that was being negotiated in, you know, by, the, by the sole negotiators in their little smoke-filled private room, the GOP wanted to give an additional – well, the Democrats wanted to give an additional $1,400 to match the $600 to be $2,000. But the GOP, instead of $1,400, wanted to give just $1,000. You know, so they they're working this through, but you know the Republicans are going to lose this argument because they don't have the numbers. But it's going to be a, a fourteen hundred dollars per person um, if you are earning a hundred thousand dollars a year or less, or a family of two hundred thousand dollars a year or less will get fourteen hundred dollars per person. Um, and what's interesting is is that 
it, it, that $1,400 can be phased down um, if you're in between, if you earn between $75,000 and $100,000, it's a sliding scale. So like if you earn $75,000, you'll get the full $1,400. But if you earn $76,000 or $83,000 or $92,000, you'll get some amount less. And if you earn over $100,000, you don't get anything. So I didn't know that. Um, I thought that was interesting. There was that sliding scale. And the other cool thing is, is that college students can now get this. So I remember on the first round of stimulus, my daughter, who, you know, she's got her own corporate job and, 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 uh, but she couldn't qualify for it last time because the previous year she was under the family tax plan and she was listed as a dependent. And so she didn't qualify for the, the previous stimulus checks. Uh, now she will because, and granted, she's in the corporate workforce, but our last tax filing, she was a college student. So now college students will be eligible um, for the check, which is new. That's interesting. Um, going down the list, a few more things. Um, Out-of-work Americans um, will still get $400 a, a week, um, and that's through August 29th. And what's which is interesting now is now they're opening up to all the gig workers. So freelancers, gig workers, independent contractors, and other people that were affected by the coronavirus, they're going to be able to remain in that same program. They're going to be able to continue to get benefits as a result of this. And, um, and, but I think what's going to happen is, is that one of the old programs, if I got this right, one of the old programs is going to expire in March, but the new one's going to continue into October 29th. So basically people that are out of work are not only collecting unemployment if they're still eligible, but they're also getting this additional $400 a week. Uh, people that are hungry, there's going to be a 15% increase in food stamps um, and, and also in meals for um, low-income uh, families and their children that normally get these meals at school. There are going to be uh, provisions for that. I mean, if you're behind on your rent or mortgage, um, there's going to be money available there. They're giving $19 billion to state and local governments to help low-income households cover back rent, rent assistance, and utility bills. And I saw a headline on this recently that in the state of California, this was some outrageous number. It was, it was started with a B. It was like over a billion in unpaid utility bills. And I know there's been conversation here in Poway about people that have unpaid water bills. And you can imagine that, A, there's people that can't pay, right, because of the COVID pandemic and people are out of work. And But then they also give people a break, right? They, they're they saying, well, if you don't pay, you're not going to lose the service. So then some people say, well, then I'm not paying. Um, so as a result, there's this big backlog of bills due. I often wonder that when this situation goes away, are people ever going to make up these payments? I mean, especially like with rent. I mean, imagine if, you know, you, you're in arrears on rent, like eight, nine months. I mean, that could be, I don't know, 10 grand, 20 grand. I mean, depending on where you live. Um, at, when this COVID crisis is over, are they going to have to back pay like that 10 or 20 grand for all the rent in arrears? Are they going to have to back pay all of this or is the government going to throw money at it and wipe it away? So this is interesting. Um, if you have children, um, families with minor children can claim a larger tax credit for 2021, especially for low income parents. Um, and the credit will be fully refundable. So low income parents could take advantage of it. So the way I understand this is, is that, well, I think the, the credit's 3,600. So if you, let's just say, if you, if you, 
had a tax, you owe the federal government $3,600 in taxes at the end of the day. This tax credit would zero it out and you wouldn't have to pay taxes. Um, But let's just say you only owed $1,000 in taxes. We got a $3,600 credit. The non-refundable ones mean, well, okay, you just don't pay taxes. But this, I think, if if you owe $1,000 and you get a $3,600 tax credit for your child, then the government will write you a check for $2,600 and you don't pay taxes. So that's what's going to happen here. It's going to be non-refundable. And um, they're also going to provide $39 billion to child care providers. Wow. If you're sick, um, you know, they're, they're going to give tax credits to companies that provide paid sick leave because of the COVID crisis. So the government's going to backfill that. Um, if you need health insurance and enrollees um, to the Affordable Care Act, to Obamacare, we will pay no more than 8.5% of their income towards coverage. And it used to be no more than 10%. So they're making the health care more affordable. They're subsidizing that. And lower income people won't have to pay at all. Um, and there's also benefits if you're like on COBRA, like, you know, if you left your job and you didn't have health insurance, you're on COBRA, they're making that more affordable. And the bill would also provide $15 billion to the Emergency Injury Disaster Loan Program. Um, so that's another, essentially like a grant that was offered to people. Um, $25 billion for a new program specifically for bars and restaurants. So they're going to be, you know, having money to pass out for those folks. And they're the ones, of course, that have been getting killed in this whole situation. Especially, God forbid, you're a bar that doesn't offer food. I mean, you can't, it's illegal for you to be in business. So, um, you know, so they're figuring out ways to provide uh, income there. The Paycheck Protection Program is going to be a second round of those loans. They're providing $7 billion for that. And some nonprofits are going to, you know, be a part of that. And $175 million will be used for outreach and promotion to educate businesses that they can qualify for the Paycheck Protection Program. So it's essentially like a marketing program to give away more money. <laughs> so if you look at it, again, let's assume that you're um, sympathetic to the whole idea that the government's got to bail everyone out. You know, we had a pandemic and people can't work and who the heck's going to bail these people out? And we got to help these people. Um, and, and you believe there needs to be a bailout. Um, now, for me, I think they shouldn't have shut the government, the, the economy down in the first place, uh, because uh, if they didn't, then people could work. And there are ways people could work safely. And I think we're learning that now. Um, I think we're more educated on this, that there are ways that we can be safe. And a lot of these shutdowns were really unwarranted. But I digress. The reality today is, is that, yeah, people have been shut down. And for some companies, maybe it's justice that they're getting this because they got shut down by, you know, the authoritarians. You know, they darn right deserve compensation for that, which is a whole other angle to it. But, you know, if it, generally, if you're sympathetic to this sort of thing, um, you know, or if you believe we need to do more to help the poor and poverty, then this all sounds great. And, man, they can't sign this bill fast enough. Now, I know there was going to be an increase in the minimum wage as part of this, um, but they it's not going to happen. I don't think even the Democrats, like we we're talking about Joe Manchin in West Virginia, and I think, what's her name in Arizona? Cinema um, is that her name? Um, and I think she was showing some objection to the minimum wage increase. I don't think the Democrats are going to be able to do it, but they're going to probably pass all the rest of this. And so you hear people like saying, you know, where's my check? Where's my $1,400 check? And is that coming? But and they, they know that, but they don't realize there's all this other stuff. But 
this is the good stuff. This is the part that I really wanted to talk about. And it's this is the part that Pat Johnson encouraged me to talk about. And this is an article. I'll include this in the show notes. Ten crazy examples of unrelated waste and partisan kickbacks in the new COVID bill. <laughs> and so, yeah, here, here's the article. It's from, from Fee, F-E-E, um, and a picture of uh, uh, Schumer and Pelosi on the front of it. And, yeah, so it's a $1.9 trillion deal. And you're thinking, well, you know there's going to be a little bit of scratch and backs here, that some of this money may not be going for, you know, some of these things that you believe they should be going to. And some of these are just amazing. Like one of them is there's $1 billion in this package that's going to go strictly for racial justice for farmers. So they've been able to somehow categorize farmers and decided which ones are socially disadvantaged by whatever, you know, um, uh, political identity or, you know, whatever categories they are in. And then they're going to be passing this money out to those people. And you're thinking, really? Okay, this is unrelated to the pandemic. This is really, I mean, you, we can debate social justice and there's some righteous points in that discussion and some areas where I might disagree. But th- this is, has nothing to do with a virus <laughs> and nothing to do with businesses being shut down. This is like a, a way to, you know, create more equity. I mean, this is a whole other initiative that is unrelated to COVID. There's another one here, $50 million for environmental justice grants. So uh, this is essentially grants via the um, Environmental Protection Agency through the EPA that are going to be handed out to businesses. And it's already being called a thinly veiled kickback because a lot of this money is going to go to left-wing political groups. So again, you know, I'm I'm with you on environmentalism. I drive an electric car. We have solar energy. I'm all about clean, um, clean energy. But really, like $50 million can be passed out for environmental justice, which has nothing to do with the COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, this is another one. $112 million for the Bay Area Rapid Transit. This is BART. Have you ever been in San Francisco, especially in the East Bay? Uh, BART is the... The subway, the train, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the mass transit system, Bay Area Rapid Transit. They're going to provide $112 million for this to provide underground wa- rail in Silicon Valley. Like, really? <laughs> okay, what does that have to do with COVID? Now, just as a side note, like I told you, I was uh, raised in Burlingame. And I remember they built BART and it was always on the East Bay. And, you know, if if you could get on BART, man, you could go uh, travel around like from Hayward to Oakland. And then they built the tunnel, the tube that went underneath the bay, kind of along parallel to the Bay Bridge. And they brought it into San Francisco. And that was mind blowing. And that was like probably in the 70s, right? Maybe the early 80s. And then wasn't there like a fire in the tube at one point? It was awful accident. Um, but now it's, you know, it's very safe. It's, you know, it's largely well regarded up in the Bay Area. But I remember then when I when I moved away in the early 80s to go to college, um, it was only in San Francisco and the East Bay, and that was it. But then about yeah, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, they finally brought it down the peninsula, and it got as far south as Millbrae. Uh, but it didn't quite get to Burlingame. But then there's this whole gap, you know, from Millbrae down to, you know, like Santa Clara, San Jose, to Silicon Valley. Um, it doesn't make it all the way. It's a big gap. I think you can get correct me if I'm wrong, I think you can get to San Jose, Santa Clara 
the other way, like from the East Bay and then coming around underneath the southern part of the bay. Um, but you can't get to it from the peninsula. So they're going to maybe fill that gap, which kind of sounds cool. But again, what does this have to do with the COVID-19 virus? Nothing. Um, there's $10 million for Native American language preservation. Okay. Um, I'm sympathetic to that cause. I am. I, you know, we, we love our Native Americans and, you know, we don't want them to, you know, suffer in, in this society, in this culture, in this economy. But what does that have to do? $10 million for Native American language preservation. What does that have to do with a virus, a vaccine, an economic recovery where businesses are being shut down and people are out of work and they can't make their rent payment? What is what is language preservation have to do with that? I mean, nothing at all. So, so these are all like it's like uh, oh, Rahm Emanuel. Remember Rahm Emanuel? He was the chief of staff of President Obama, the former mayor of Chicago. And he had a great line. He, he said, never let a crisis go to waste. So whenever there is this crisis, we got to do something. Someone's got to do something. Well, what they do is they put in, you know, the stuff that I read originally, the $1,400 checks and, and you know, more, uh, you know, food aid and more things to help out the poor and all the things that make them look like really good people, like saints, but then they sneak in all this other stuff. And these are kind of like kickbacks or, or ways to scratch the back of some of their supporters. Here's another one. $200 million for museum and library services. And apparently there is an institute of museum and library services. I didn't even know that was a thing. And for the most part, museums and libraries have been shut down. And, you know, their employees are still getting paid. They're government workers. So, why do they need $200 million? That, to me, that doesn't make any sense. Here's another one. $750 million for global health. Okay, now, okay, at least we're talking about health. And we're talking about the coronavirus and the recovery and from the pandemic. We're t- finally talking about health. But it's for global health. <laughs> so it's to help the health care in other countries. Now, should we be helping out other people yeah, we can make an argument. Yeah, should we be um, helping reduce the virus in other nations so it doesn't come back into America? We can have that discussion too. But really, I mean, is this one of the first things we should be doing? I, I don't think so. Uh, here's Steve Dow on, on, the, on the live stream chiming in about BART. Do you think some of these items seemingly unrelated to COVID are argued as economic stimulus, i.e. the BART extension would likely create construction jobs and maybe drive the economy? Well, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that argument is being made, okay? And what's interesting is, is that, um, you know, we could put money to any sorts of things and justify it as it's going to help the economy. It's going to stimulate the economy. Um, but it's interesting that what's happening here is that this is a Democratic-sponsored bill. So, of course, it's going to initiatives that are consistent with that value system. So that's why we're seeing more money that's going to mass transit, you know, to more trains and subways, which is typically a more left-wing cause. Now, it, in my opinion, this is where this is where it's difficult because now the, the government is picking winners and losers. Now the government gets to be in their lofty position. Say, I got $1.9 trillion. I've got all this power. Now, who am I going to give the money to? 
Who is going to help me as a politician, you know, keep me in power, keep voting me back in office? I'm going to give money to those people that are going to help me. So they pick things like BART, you know, as opposed to any number of other, you know, transportation initiatives. Like, for example, here in San Diego, maybe widening the 67 freeway or the 78 freeway. That's not in this. Of course not. Uh, So they, they pick winners and losers. When really that ends up just distorting the system and it only encourages more of this game playing, right? Because now you're saying, oh, well, if I get do, if I work and build mass transit, I'm going to get more subsidies and people start playing the game because it is a game. And that's kind of the whole point of this podcast. So, yeah, I mean, if they build BART and that extension is built, of course, it's going to stimulate the economy in some way. I mean, there's going to be more infrastructure jobs. So there's going to be construction work going on and that's going to help. And then plus the um, economic opportunity of BART going all the way down the peninsula is going to help because it's going to relieve congestion on the freeway and it's going to make the air cleaner and it's going to be a lot of benefits to the, the greater society. Sure. I mean, but we could pick any number of initiatives that are going to have a lot of uh, benefits. So who chooses? And when they choose, they end up rewarding some and others are losers, but they typically reward their donors. They typically reward those organizations that help put them into office. And that's where you get a little bit of this cronyism. And then what if, like my friend who worked as a contractor for a um, federal agency, what if you played the game to check off more boxes to have female-owned and minority-owned businesses strictly by doing this convoluted thing of incorporating yourself and having your wife as the president of the company who is completely unrelated to the work you do, but you set it up as a shell corporation. So then you can get in, not only make more money, but then the company um, is able to check more of those boxes so they can be eligible to get contracts to help build the infrastructure for the Bay Area rapid transit system. And interestingly, my friend's company, I think, is involved in that, if I recall. So amazing. Isn't this all amazing? So it's a game that's being played out there, and some people are playing it better than others. Some people don't know the game exists at all. And then other people are using government as a way to rig the system to play the game in a way that is to their advantage and to the disadvantage of other people. Here's another one. Again, our Native American friends. I have no beef with Native Americans, not at all. This is to provide Native American housing, $750 million for Native American housing. I mean, it, it's housing, Native American. I have no objection to that, but it has nothing to do with COVID or the crisis or the, the recovery. Nothing at all. Um, expansion of Obama, Obamacare subsidies. Now you're thinking, okay, here we are. We're back to health care, right? This is good. But what it is, is that they want to exp- essentially expand the subsidies so more rich people can qualify for Obamacare because Obamacare has caps that, provi- that prohibit high-income people from participating in that exchange or getting the full value of the offering in the exchange. So they have to pay more. Well, now they want to rele- relieve those caps so more rich people can get onto Obamacare. You're thinking, this is crazy. I mean, why are we subsidizing rich people? That doesn't make any sense. But the rich people were able to rig the system by twisting the arms of politicians to slip this into the bill and then it also reinforces, you know, again, if you're a big supporter of single payer, this just keeps moving the ball downfield as we get closer and closer to the inevitable single payer, which I know is going to eventually happen. Billions of dollars to public schools, whether they reopen or not. 
129 billion of this, that's like almost 10%, um, is going to go to schools. And you might think, well, yeah, we got to do schools. I mean, they need help and, and we got to help them out and we got to get kids back to school. And like, I get that we do, but a lot of these schools have been shut down, you know? And so, and, and they're still paying their people. So, and in fact, even in California, they're getting more money for schools. I mean, Poway Unified just announced that they're going to get another tranche of cash outside the scope. One of those one-time payments that arrive from Sacramento, thanks to good old Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, they're getting more money. Um, and yeah, some of their expenses went up a bit because they had to figure out all this online education. But still, you think that if the schools are shut down, that what's going on at the schools? It's not like they have to pay to maintain them. They don't have to pay to keep the lights on. But now we're going to give more money to schools. So again, it's not that I'm objecting to schools per se. It's that it's a game being played by these other people that they're trying to figure out some way to pay, get more money to the schools. I mean, they would be, if there wasn't a COVID crisis, they would still be trying to figure out a way to get more money to the schools. But now, like Rahm Emanuel says, never let a good, um, never let a uh, good crisis go to waste. Now they've got a crisis. Now they've got to solve it. Now suddenly, now they have a vehicle. They have a reason to, to give more money to the schools. And then there's also pet projects, countless pet projects from lawmakers. And this is an interesting one. There's $1.5 million allocated for what's called the Seaway International Bridge. And it's a bridge that connects New York to Canada and is a priority for New York Senator Chuck Schumer. There you go. So there's the majority leader in the Senate. He wants to get in some of his stuff, his pork for his state. And again, if you're going to maybe if we're going to follow Steve's thought process that it's building infrastructure, that's going to stimulate the economy. But where are they stimulating it? They're doing it to scratch the back of these politicians so they get what they want so they can stay in power. That's how they play it. They manipulate it. And they were the ones that picked the winners and losers. So. It's interesting. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could say some of this is corrupt. Um, you know, we, I'm sure we're going to learn more about this as it rolled out. I mean, right now, they haven't even approved it. But at some point, this money will be being dished out. And I think we're going to see where it goes and how it's used. But, I mean, think about this. I mean, this $1.9 trillion is an enormous amount of money after all of the other stimuluses we've done. And here I'm thinking we could have avoided almost all of this. If we had just kept the economy open or at least weren't as draconian with the shutdowns, but it's just they've, they've effectively blown up a system. And now we're on a house of cards. Now they have to keep pumping money in to kind of keep that house of cards up. And that's what they're doing here. But understand the scope of this. The federal government, roughly speaking, brings in about three trillion dollars of revenue each year and spends about four trillion. That's before covid OK, um, now with covid, I mean, they're spending, you know, up the wazoo and one point nine trillion. You're thinking, well, that's just going to be added to the debt. Right. So in the end, who's going to pay for this? Well, as taxpayers, we're going to pay. But really, it's put on to the credit card. And who's going to pay your children and grandchildren who have they were not responsible for this pandemic in the first place and also aren't going to be enjoying the benefits of a lot of this stuff because it's going to be 50, 100 years down the road. They're the ones are going to be paying if they ever pay it at all. So to me, it's it's almost like, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's fiscally irresponsible. But 
and other levels, it's it's just kind of a way to rig the system and play the game. Um, so the one question I want to ask you is, do you think there is any politician that exists? I mean, pick one. Pick the most angelic person that you think exists that you would trust to dole out $1.9 trillion fairly. I don't think such a person exists because they are always going to dole it out to the causes they believe are righteous or to the people that that they want to help because they help them. And so it's going to be this distorted system. So, um, you know, and then this thing is like 600 pages. Uh, no one's going to read it. I mean, no regular, very few regular people are going to read it, except some journalists, they'll go through it. But uh, it's going to pass. I mean, you know, I'm not going to fight it. it. It is what it is. It's going to pass. And they, they might negotiate. I think they're going to drop the minimum wage requirement, but that's going to come back pretty quick uh, because we have a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate effectively a Democratic Senate. And then, of course, we have a Democrat in the White House. And you know, again, I, you know me, I'm, I'm no fan of Democrats. I'm no fan of Republicans either. I mean, because Republicans do all this BS too. Uh, so by no means is this an indictment of only one side. Um, but it, it just seems like it's just the, the same old thing, right? You know, it's, it's, it's uh, find ways to pick winners and losers, to empower politicians, so they can play the game, often at our expense. Um, and and then we wonder why these turkeys keep getting reelected when they have like a 7% approval rating. Um, and it's because of this, because Schumer is able to get a deal in that he can claim was for his people in New York, and they'll reelect him. And everyone tends to like their senator and their congressional representative, but they hate all the others. And that's how they play the game against us. So... It's something. But um, I wanted to cover that. I mean, Pat Johnson recommended I go through it, and I hope you enjoyed it. I offered a lot of my own commentary. Some things I didn't say, but maybe you probably could tell what I think. Um, But I was trying to, you know, in many cases, be sort of even-handed in some areas, but in other areas, I I have agreement and disagreement. Now, as a taxpayer, as a business owner, I'm going to try to qualify for as much of this as I can. I, I won't qualify for the the $1,400 check, but um, like I already took paycheck protection program from my business and I don't, I don't have a problem with that. And it, it may end up being forgiven. Um, if it's not forgiven, it's only a 1% payment, but a 1% interest rate. So I'll just pay it back. But um, I would be foolish not to take advantage of these things that exist because I need to play the game so I can win. And I'm being taxed so much to be in the United States and in California that I would be foolish just to not take advantage of this. Um, to me, it's like justice um, where I can get back, you know, what I've had to pay. And that's part of the reason why I have an electric car and why I have solar and a lot of other things. And that's how, kind of how I rationalize it. So, okay. Um, wow. We've been going an hour and a half. I mean, thank you for the, those of you that are still with me. I really appreciate your support and your help and, I mean, I, I couldn't do this without you. Um, I really appreciate your support. And and just as an aside, you know, um, I already told uh, Yuri that we'd love to have him on as a guest when he's a candidate next year. Um, Steve, love to have you back. I got your book in the mail, by the way. So uh, love to have you back to, to learn more about, um, you know, your new offering and 
Steve, you and I have some great conversations. There's areas where you and I have fantastic agreement. And in the areas where we disagree, um, you and I have really good conversations and really respectful and civil discussions. So I look forward to that. I prefer having guests on this podcast. I think the audience gets more out of it. I get more out of it. Uh, but sometimes, you know, I want to stay consistent on this Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two o'clock. So I figure when I don't have a guest, then I get to make this like a talk radio show and I'll take my callers, but my callers come in the form of messages on the screen. And so Yuri says, yes. And yeah, Yuri, love to have you back. Um, you, Yuri, you had a lot of really good opinions and thoughts on your mayoral run in, in, in Poway. And a lot of those issues are very, very topical based on the you know reconstruction on Poway Road. So you would be a fantastic guest to discuss these issues. And I'm sure you've got a lot more to talk about. So when the time is right, Yuri, let me know and we'll schedule you in. Uh, so, you know, I just leave that with all of you. If you, if, you know, Pete, Pete's not shy. Pete Neal, who I assume is still watching. Pete's been a guest on our, we, we, we talked about it. It wasn't like 12 or 13 times he's been on the podcast. So I love that. I love having other people on this and making this fun, making it a community forum and it's not just me on my soapbox. I want to have more thoughts, more discussion, and more varying points of view as we go through this. But I can't do it without you. And, uh, and I love your support, and I'm grateful for your support. And, you know, if you, if you want to help the cause, man, just share the love. Share the message. Tell people about the podcast. Like the podcast. Like this episode. Uh, give a thumbs up to this episode. Um, share it on social media or just share it verbally. Hey, tell your friend, hey, you know, there's this guy in Poway that has a podcast. His name's John Riley. He talks about Poway issues. We talk about San Diego issues. We talk about politics, culture, sports, economy, business, entrepreneurship. We talk about electric vehicles a lot. I like talking about EVs um, and solar. We talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, talk sports. Uh, you know, we had David Leland on here a number of times. And David Leland, by the way, has started his own podcast. I'm really proud of that young man. Um, and he started a YouTube channel, and I'm looking forward to that. So, uh, Yuri, another great show, John. Thank you, Yuri. Um, you know, again, you all may not agree with what I say. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you do agree. Um, but I'm just putting stuff out there to create the discussion. That's the whole point of this. Um, I'm... You know, I think I'm right on what I believe, but but I know people have different opinions. I get it, and I respect that. Um, and I love talking it out. You know, it's it's like you know that old adage where they say you should never you, know, you go to a party and you never talk religion or politics. And and generally that's true. But I'll tell you what, man, if you could have a really good discussion with someone about religion and politics, and it's and it's respectful. And it's not heated and it's civil and it's as rational as you can make it. Those are the best discussions. And, and it's not necessarily that you want to debate it. Sometimes you might want to be a devil's advocate and debate it, but it's more so learning what the other person thinks and why they think it. And again, it always comes down to morality. It comes down to moral code is what it always comes down to. They believe what they believe because they believe that's what's right. That's what's just. Um, yeah, that's good stuff. So uh, look forward to that. So anyways, it's Friday. I've gone on long enough. Um, I'll be back at you on Monday. I might on Monday's podcast, 
my I got to pick up my son at the airport, and I think it's going to interrupt the podcast. So I'm either going to start it late, or I'm going to pre-record it and make it available Monday at two. I, one or the other. I haven't decided. So I'll let you know. Uh, but until then, man, have a great weekend, and um, and 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 be safe out there, friends. We'll see you later. Bye bye.